2: Okay, let's 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 go to the awareness training. You've you've used the phrase grooming a lot, so um, uh, and we're not talking about hairdressing. So uh, so let's let's uh, stop and think a little bit about uh, about the types of things that people are made aware of in these in these sessions that show that this training is so beneficial.
3: Okay what i need my people to first understand is you see we're all holding on to a i call it a bank of information mm-hmm. about sexual abuse mm-hmm. it's not a new topic now given where we've been in the last 15 20 years mm-hmm. and but unfortunately that information that most of my people are holding on to involves a lot of misconception and error mm. so one of the key points of the awareness training at least the awareness training that we do mm-hmm. is to try to help you identify What are some of the wrong things you might be believing about sexual abuse? Because what we believe shapes what we do. Mm -hmm. If you believe error, you're going to respond with error. Mm. And so it's first identifying for people there's no visual profile. Mm -hmm. Your criminal background check is a piece of your system, but not a reason to completely rest and turn your brain off, Mm -hmm. that you need to also understand that the behavior is the key and that sexual abuse are going to look like you and me. Mm. And that's that's real hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, just it's difficult to have people let go of that concept mm-hmm. that they can visually recognize risk. Mm-hmm. Once we can shake up some of those misconceptions a little bit, and then move them to a place that they can understand the grooming process—that's the behaviors that a predator will go through to be able to prepare a child and the adults mm-hmm. for inappropriate behavior it's a setup. with a child. Right. Yeah. And so. Sadly, the sexual abuser is counting on mm-hmm. my people's ignorance and misconception and error. Because they move without detection within all of those misunderstandings. Which is why ninety percent of them have never
2: come into the legal process is because they've been fairly successful at doing what they're doing. They're
3: not identified. Mm-hmm. And and it's, go down that road, just I'm gonna Show great discipline mm-hmm. in just answering your question, counselor. Okay. <laughs> but what the grooming process is trying to show people that generally you can put it into four large categories. Mm-hmm. Number one, the preferential offender is going to seek to gain access. Mm-hmm. In other words, this is a seeking volunteer and career opportunities that places that person within the age and sexual of preference of children that mm-hmm. person has a deviant sexual attraction for. Mm-hmm. And so if it's somebody that has a deviant sexual attraction for little girls ages four to seven, you'll find somebody volunteering in the third grade Sunday school class, working with the, the brownies, mm-hmm. you know, working with where there are children within that age and sexual preference. Once that person has gained access, they're going to work to select one or more children. And generally, there's there's enough information that we have to understand some of the pattern in doing that. Hmm. What they're looking for, because the ultimate goal is to carve a child away for inappropriate behavior one-on-one that this person wants to keep secret, Mm -hmm. it's looking for that child who's somehow on the fringe or in need, that child who's looking for someone to trust, that child that's from the the single-parent home, the child that's uh, maybe struggling with, with with alcohol or pornography, Mm -hmm. you know, some way in which this person that's got the deviant sexual desire will come alongside that child when that child's trust and start to build in some secrecy, rule-breaking, things like that, and try to then, in step number three, mm-hmm. start introducing nudity and sexual touch. Mm-hmm. For a very small child, it might be a lot of touch games, a lot of our secret relationship, our, you know, a lot of tickle games. Mm-hmm. Once a child's into middle school, high school, it will oftentimes involve a lot of sexual joking. A lot of sexual discussion, a lot of accidental, you know, and horseplay kind of touch to try to test those barriers with a child, and with the ultimate goal to push those barriers all the way back into inappropriate sexual behavior. But to find out, is that child going to resist? Is that child going to push back? You know, if we make some joking comments about nudity and and or depants a kid in public, or dare somebody to go, you know, streaking into the girls' dorm, or. Whatever, to see which child, if it can be fun or gamey, can involve nudity or inappropriate touch. And once that person has pushed those barriers back, you know, to where there's now levels of inappropriateness, mm-hmm. it's also important to the abuser to keep that child quiet. Mm-hmm. Now, for a boy, oftentimes, for a male molester and the boy – the victim being a boy, mm-hmm. it's not hard. Mm-hmm. Just because of way same-sex behavior is being tossed around in our culture, a boy will oftentimes – that's enough. The boy will never share that information. Mm-hmm. So an abuser doesn't have to work very hard to keep a boy quiet. But it's also the the threats, whether they're direct or subtle. It's the, you know, no one's going to believe you. You know, they're going to call you a liar. Unfortunately, oftentimes we don't mm-hmm. believe the child. Okay? So mm-hmm. it's – in that sense, it's the gain access – select a child, start pushing back barriers and introducing nudity and sexual touch, and keeping the child quiet.
2: How, how long? How long process <coughs> does this work out to be on an average? Is there? Do, are there statistics in that regard, or is it, uh, is it just, you know, uh, each situation somewhat different obviously, but is there, is, there, is, there a, is there a timing element that usually this process plays
3: itself out on? Because it sounds like this takes a little bit of work. It does, and it varies a great deal. I mean, we have a situation of a, a pastor in Keller that victimized a handful of you know four to seven year old little girls at one birthday party, and it took two or three hours mm-hmm. of a process to test bearers push back into an appropriate touch, and then the effort to keep the child quiet. For some, it might be a matter of weeks, you know, maybe months. Now, as a general rule, kind of, and this is where I have to stay in generalizations. That's right. That. Generally, it's longer to groom a girl than it is for a guy. And oftentimes it's – and that that goes hand-in-hand with the statistic that most people are also not familiar with, is Mm -hmm. the average male molester who prefers boys as victims will have 150 victims prior to criminal prosecution, with the average age of beginning to molest being 14 or 15 and the average age of criminal prosecution being 35, Mm -hmm. okay? The average male molester who prefers girls – fifty two victims prior to criminal prosecution, if he's prosecuted. Now, one fifty versus fifty two, both those numbers are large. Mm-hmm. but why the disparity? And some of the studies are telling us it's just it's right in line with how God made us, that He made guys very visual and easy to stimulate. okay? But he made girls for relationship. Mm-hmm. so that oftentimes this grooming process for the girl will take longer. Because it's necessary for the abuser to build in at least a fake relationship Mm -hmm. before it progresses into further inappropriate touch and talk. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so, so in terms of answering your question, it can vary widely, but generally a little bit longer for the girl because of those added steps, whereas with a guy, to visually stimulate, introduce touch, you know. That's what arouses a boy, and the abuser can do that without this added two or three steps. So, what kinds of? Uh, oh, yeah, so many
2: questions. I'm not sure which <laughs> one to do first. So let's we'll start. Let's do it with leadership first. What kinds of things can leadership do, other than you know, other than getting this kind of core information that gets them oriented, uh, that can help them do a better job of protection? Obviously, the, the no system's going to be 100 percent fail safe. But what what can you do to to Uh,
3: uh, uh, how to say it, heighten the odds that you're going to do well. Okay, I think it's a – I'd call it two separate things. One, the awareness training just to kind of give you the eyes to see Mm -hmm. I need to understand sexual abusers before I can begin to understand how to reduce the risk of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's a – I just know because I've been in this realm long enough that we filmed a seven-part tutorial – seven videos mm-hmm. that are meant for leadership, mm-hmm. to meant to help you understand what does the big picture look like? Mm-hmm. Now what do I need to know about criminal background checks? Mm-hmm. Now there's only so much I can share with you in, in 12 minutes, right. but there's a practical element of it has value, how much value, how do I use it, how does it fit within a system? Mm-hmm. So the awareness training can give you information. These are meant to take that information and equip leadership with what they need to now know to put a system in place. Mm-hmm. And then on my site, there's also the sample forms. So you're not just out there with theory. Mm-hmm. You can take a sample form, get the eyes to see and ears to hear, then watch these video tutorials and shape your system to be able to be a glove that fits your hand. Now you mentioned the site, I take it that's ministrysafe.com,
2: is that's that right? right. And and so uh, some some more information, some more detail is available there for for some of the um, key things that need to be done. Let me let me shift a, slightly to another group. What do you what do you do with the people who actually are working with the kids? What 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 is important
3: to get accomplished with them? Okay. Now that depends on whether I'm with them live or whether or not they have to rely on some of the tools that we've made available. Okay. If I if it take my home church. Mm-hmm. You know, I know what the policies and procedures say. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I helped craft them mm-hmm. and they fit the different types of programs that we are, you know, providing ministry within. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to give them an awareness training that's going to to actually fit it to who we are mm-hmm. and I'm going to tell them here's what the grooming process. Here's how it may unfold mm-hmm. in this particular in this particular situation. I can also tell you about some circumstance like the one you alluded to in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Here's some examples of how this goes bad mm-hmm. just so you don't think it's my just giving you theory right. These are real people that love Jesus, real people that were trying to make a difference that this was a false allegation and the ramifications that flow from it. Here are some of the people that that were accused, but no one would have ever guessed. And then I'm going to walk them through, here's the law on reporting. We Mm -hmm. do not mess this up. Mm -hmm. But here's what I also want from you. I don't want you to just have the, the, the permission to communicate if something triggers something that's maybe reportable to law enforcement. I want us all to be talking. Mm -hmm. I mean, if something, women, you have liver quivers, Mm -hmm. something that just bothers you, it's like, that's just not right. Mm -hmm. We need to create that culture that everybody can share what they see when they see it so that leadership has the opportunity to put a picture together. Because when the train wrecks, oftentimes the picture becomes very clear Mm -hmm. with all of the information people knew but weren't discussing. Mm -hmm. And then I'm probably going to finish that with just the encouragement that someday each one of these people that I'm working with are going to be parents too. Mm -hmm. Someone's going to call them mom or dad, Mm -hmm. and that this is just a broken environment that we work in, and that we need to take this seriously, not just because of the children we're ministering to, but it's going to better equip us to be moms and dad in the the communities and environments that we live in.
2: Now, Jay, you've been sitting here listening to this, and you minister in this area. Um, What what strikes you about about the
1: conversation that we've had? Well, I've got I've got a lot of uh, questions and clarification points that I want Greg to to kind of hit on um, that I think will help be very practical for for our churches and our church people. One I think we need to probably define the concept of mandatory reporter. What does that mean and and who
3: would qualify as a mandatory reporter? Okay. That's going to change from state to state. Okay. And also we need to understand there is a culture shift. I mean right now the culture is moving away from litigation. You know, they just tort reform. Mm-hmm unless it involves with child sexual abuse, and it's moving this way. Mm -hmm. States are changing their laws to open up statutes of limitation. They're changing their laws as to what requirements they want in place from organizations that deliver services to children, like the awareness training. But they're also tightening up their laws as it relates to reporting information and suspicions of abuse and neglect. Texas has probably the most, you know, the strictest, reporting requirement in the country there's not even an attorney client privilege right. no clergy privilege there's no teacher privilege. there's no privilege in the state of Texas explain what clergy privilege is too clergy privilege is when some people think that if you're having a conversation with a pastor that's clergy privilege okay it's just not what technically the privilege means is there is a protected there's a compelling state interest to protect the confidentiality of certain communications like with your doctor you know or with your spouse. In a clergy privilege, is if someone comes to you with a confessional type of communication, and the person they're communicating with is a a minister, or and it usually defines what is clergy, and and it was it was shared in the with the expectation that it would remain confidential, then that information remains privileged, okay. It, it's actually much more narrow than you think. In the right. state of Texas, they decided no. Doesn't exist. No. If, it, if it's related to a child abuse or so neglect don't have of a to child, you worry
2: about it in one sense. If right. you
3: hear it, you report it. But, but That's most right. people yeah. don't
1: understand that. They don't realize that right. so a teenager comes to them in their office and, you know, is distraught mm-hmm. and wants to tell them confidentially that this has happened mm-hmm. or they've witnessed it happening mm-hmm. and the clergy member mistakenly believes that because of this clergy penitent privilege that they think exists mm-hmm. they're not a mandatory reporter they mm-hmm. think that they're not required to report this abuse but they are
3: yeah in the state of Texas in the state of now, Texas different states will they will specifically define who are those mandatory reporters from state to state and it will always include teachers and medical professionals mm-hmm. because we know statistically those are the people children are most likely to share information about abuse or neglect mm-hmm. so the laws will always make teachers and medical professionals, mandatory reporters. and But from that point, sometimes it includes clergy, sometimes it doesn't. But all of the laws that I've seen are moving toward removing or making very, very narrow when you have a privilege. And so, for example, the common clergy privilege I see now is that if you receive information in that very narrow context of a penitent and a clergy member that's defined by the statute but you receive that information from any other avenue, then it's all of a sudden reportable. Okay? So if you hear from this person confessing, I molested a child and I need forgiveness and I need – and then all of a sudden someone brings to you a report where a child has made the allegation against that person, all that that blows the privilege Hmm. if you receive it from any other outside source. Now the point of all of that is in the laws, it's going to identify who are your mandatory reporters. So there will be those very narrow privileges in some states, and those are getting more narrow. Mm -hmm. And it mandates that information be communicated to a designated entity. And oftentimes it will be a Department of Human Services, a Child Protective Service, the sheriff if it's a rural area that doesn't have one of those types of health and human services types of offices there. So the law will generally tell who they want communicating what type of information they want communicated, where they want it communicated, in what time period, what type of protections are in place when somebody does make a good faith report, like confidentiality Mm -hmm. and the ability to make anonymous reports, and what penalties are associated with a mandatory reporter failing to report. Right. And those are changing from state to state, and they are not getting more loose. They are actually getting tighter. And and many churches will
1: mistakenly do what this church in Colorado did, was we'll conduct our own internal investigation and delay – this church, unfortunately, never reported, but some churches would say, well, let's just figure out – let's find out if these allegations are true uh, on our own, and they almost always will violate the time period. What's the time period in most states
3: for when you have to report? That state will identify it it's usually 24 to 48 hours sometimes it says immediately right. which is why it you need to think through this in advance Absolutely. you don't you don't wing it and think about it and create committees you don't have time to wing it because the clock is ticking yeah. and there's some significant consequences for doing it poorly now going back just to make sure that mm-hmm. we stay true to the facts on that Colorado right. case they actually contacted someone to determine do we report this under Colorado law and that person told them no Unfortunately, there was a code section that said the girl was no longer in harm's way right but that wasn't the trigger. The trigger was, was the person being accused still in a position of leadership that could impact children that are minors? I mean just mm-hmm. back children And the answer was yes, and they didn't. Didn't fall that's what. Now, the situation that you alluded to where we thought about it for a while is more consistent with a situation that's very high profile that happened in Tulsa with a 17,000-member church right. where there was some inappropriate, highly inappropriate behavior involving a 13-year-old girl. Five people in leadership knew about it, and two weeks later still hadn't done anything with that as it relates to reporting to the authorities, and
0: all five of those leaders got arrested. This episode is brought to you by The Truths Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. So,
2: I suspect that for some people, the the flip situation is what they fear. That is, that they report a situation about someone when, in fact, if I can say it, it didn't happen, but this person is stigmatized as having done something. What is the risk
3: to leadership for making, if I can say it, that mistake? Well, there's risks either way. Mm -hmm. It's no matter which side of that do you want to. Let me let me walk you through that because I get okay. that question a lot. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because that's why I think people sure. hesitate to report. They're what if we're wrong? Right. Yeah. Ruining and one of the things, and it's the, one of the things also that when you get this report, oftentimes it's being reported. These are this is reports we don't want. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is information like it's hard for us to believe. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit into a. It's just no. And when the person comes to you reporting, and this is, ah, this person's not very believable to me. It's a child. These things are crazy. And the person they're alleging to have engaged in this behavior is somebody in the organization that's very well respected. Mm -hmm. They're very good looking. They're educated. They have an attractive wife or husband, and they have children. And it just – it's just we fall down on not believing that it could possibly be true. that's why you say you
2: can't look at the visual profile because the visual profile misleads you. Will fail you. Yeah. Will
3: fail you. Now, but when the law – the mandatory reporting is you don't go investigate it and mm-hmm. confirm whether you, this happened or not. We are to report suspicions of abuse, okay. not conclusions of abuse. So when these matters arise, even things that sound crazy, mm-hmm. that – this is why I like the phrase. So this is a pearl for everybody out there listening. Mm-hmm. That phrase is, out of an abundance of caution, comma. Mm-hmm. So that when these situations come in, these people will call me and say, look, I didn't I don't know whether it's abuse or not. It's, it, I don't know what I should do with it. It's. I don't know if it's true or not. Pick up the phone and just call whoever your law instructs you to call. It's like, look. I have a situation. I don't know if it's reportable or not, but out of an abundance of caution, I wanted to share this with you. Blank. And so you don't have to come to a
2: conclusion to make the report. That's yeah, the po- speci- That's a very important point that is that's wrapped up in this.
3: You're specifically, in many cases, instructed not okay to come to a conclusion. Right? Okay. And you're not a forensic investigator. Okay. In fact, you may be doing a disservice to those people that want to hurt the ch- help the child. Okay. But back to your original okay. question, you get a report that comes in. And you're struggling with it. Is it a false allegation? Mm-hmm. It, this is when I when I deal with this as, as a, what I understand the law requires me to do. I'm going to potentially impact this child's world, mm-hmm. this staff member's world, mm-hmm. our reputation in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just there are multiple layers that just are not foreseeable in terms of how bad this goes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we need to keep in mind the Center for Disease Control tells us. That of the children making reports of sexual abuse, between ninety-two to ninety-eight percent of them are factual, even if the child recants. Okay? So there's a real high probability that what you're getting statistically is true. Hmm. But when you get this information, even if it has all those indications of being let's let's say, for example, and I hate to use me. But I'm in student ministry, Mm -hmm. and I know there's a spiritual target on my back Mm -hmm. if I'm effective in what I do. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way to derail me in student ministry is a false allegation of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. But if someone were to have made an allegation against me, what I would immediately instruct my church is, you need to pull me back out of leadership, you need to report this to the authorities, you need to potentially, depending on what the allegations are, communicate that to the the area over which I have responsibility into the the youth ministry and tell them that there's been an allegation, you know, we've asked Greg to step away. We're gonna look into this and we wanna make sure all of you know about that. If there's any other information that you are aware of, then please come share that with us and let that system move forward. And if ultimately somebody concludes that this is the eighth time this person's made a false outcry, Mm -hmm. this is, you know, whatever information could come forward, because you see it's real hard to prove that a false allegation was the case, right? And so it's a real sense with that I might be done mm-hmm. in student ministry, mm-hmm. okay? Which is so that's how I would advise somebody, and I would pull them out of leadership, and I would make I would not keep it secret. Mm-hmm. See those things that when people finally learn something, and it gives you any indication that there's like cover up or hiding, then it's just starts to go Plus bad. the
2: person who's perpetrated this is
3: is counting on the fact that it will be kept quiet right and, and in them what I'm in those situations where the person is a predator that mm-hmm. ultimately is convicted or ultimately mm-hmm. does plead guilty and things that generally is the pattern this person is accused this person pushes back hard you know whether this mm-hmm. person's a liar this person made a mistake it was somebody else one way or another resists all of the out the outcry mm-hmm and then denies then creates factions to get support mm-hmm. then the families are ostracized and then oftentimes too often unfortunately leadership sides with the person being accused as a criminal investigation begins this person ultimately pleads guilty and the church winds up feeling very foolish mm-hmm. that they stood behind beside somebody to the great harm of a child and child you know the family you know that unfortunately is the way the story plays out. Okay, I'm going to pick up a piece that you alluded to. When you say
2: um, using the scenario that involved you, you're pulled out. We're going to take a look at this. The word "take a look at this" involves the report and letting the people who you've reported to take a look at it. Is that what that involves, or or is it an internal thing that you're talking about, or might it be both?
3: That, that's a good question, and thanks for for pointing that yeah. out. Because let's say yeah. that, for example. You see, in that example I gave, I'm actually wearing a name tag of the organization. Mm-hmm. And if there truly was, if I were a sexual abuser and I know some of the facts that about that there's multiple victims, that there's there's lots of things that are happening without people seeing it clearly, mm-hmm. then leadership should pull me out and then start inviting other people to give information. Okay, so in that sense, I'm not trying to investigate and, and operate in the role of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I'm simply trying to give my families a voice to understand has this impacted other people than the one situation that's been brought not to my attention. Not there be something
2: really be going on right. here? But I
3: am not taking the role of the authorities to be able to determine, you know, did this behavior happen? How often does it happen? Is it appropriate for, you know, referring it to the criminal justice system? You know, I'm not trying to do their job to establish the facts or to, unfortunately, too often disprove, mm-hmm. you know, something that's happened. Right. Line up witnesses of character, you know, because the the abuser is not just grooming a child for abuse, they're grooming all of the adults around as well. For their to protection. have that person believe they're helpful, trustworthy, and kind of not capable of that behavior. Right. So law enforcement is going to and the child protective systems are going to determine is there a problem, what extent, is it referable to criminal justice. Now if it were a situation, and this is more common for the church, where a child say comes to VBS and shares with somebody, here's what happens at my home when my mom leaves. Mm-hmm. So that it's an outcry that's being brought to the church that doesn't involve anybody wearing the church name tag. You see, there's still a downside for the church mishandling that. Mm-hmm. But That in that is still a mandatory reporter. Right. So they notify law enforcement, and law enforcement will do the work necessary to evaluate that particular case facts. But you see, in that sense, there's no further questioning or opportunity to give my families the ability to come forward Mm -hmm. because I'm not necessarily trying to determine, did somebody wearing our name tag – Affect my community in a broader way than's been brought to my attention.
2: Okay, so we've got three scenarios that I think we're working with now. I'm just trying to keep the map in front of people. We've got four. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I can get more. But uh, the the interesting thing here is what what I'm hearing you say about the internal situation. Let me stay focused there so we so we don't lose people. Um, If there's something that goes on within the group that is reported that what you're advising is is almost a dual track and and the one track is let law enforcement do their job they're the professionals they're supposed to determine what's going to happen but it is a service to yourself as an organization to make sure that the one incident that's been reported is not it is or is not an isolated incident that's important to know and that's something you're going to have to work to determine that's not and obviously as more things surface you're going to also be constantly cross-referring back to the law enforcement to deal with anything that comes out of that process but it's good for you to know what's going on within your own within your
3: own walls Right, but when an allegation comes out, generally you have a multi—you could could have a multifaceted problem mm-hmm. at that point. You could have a requirement of dealing with law enforcement, mm-hmm. media, mm-hmm. the families within your youth ministry or children's ministry, whatever ministry that was. All occurring, the that's going to produce the yeah. people, congregation-wise, right? Dealing with your insurance carrier, mm-hmm. dealing with trying to evaluate whether you have a reasonable system and whether you need to make changes without creating e- exhibits A, B, and C for civil litigation. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a and every one of those situations is fact-dependent. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about general scenarios and the three avenues, yeah. I mean, there could be eight. Yeah, It's all fact-driven. Uh-huh. And we've been trying to talk it, or at least I have at yeah. like 20 25,000 feet. Right. But if you have that situation, my recommendation would be first, find good counsel, mm-hmm. call your insurance agent. Mm-hmm or call your insurance care, because those are your risk management people that can help. They've been through this before. They have before, the experience, yeah. And they can generally have access to resources you don't know that are available, mm-hmm. because that's what their role is in your life. Mm-hmm. So that when you get that situation, if you're not clear on what to do, Then get some guidance and get it quickly Hmm. because the facts are going to drive what you need to do next. Okay, Jay, I kind of dropped in on your series of questions here, but you were.
1: What else? Well, it leads to what we've Mm -hmm. been talking about, leads to one of the things that I am very concerned about from a Personal and professional uh, way, and and Greg is as well. He's alluded to it. Mm-hmm. Our first and foremost priority has to be to protect the children. That's right. But I also have a strong desire to protect my own reputation. Mm-hmm. So there are things that I do to make sure that I don't put myself in a situation where a false accusation could be made. So what are some of the things that you would recommend for people who wear the name tag to do personally to make sure that they don't get themselves this, into a difficult situation? And this
2: question is. Being asked particularly of people who are in youth ministry who are susceptible to being put into this position. Exactly. Especially
3: youth ministry. Exactly. Because youth ministry is far more fluid Mm -hmm. generally than children's ministry. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, what I'd need for you to understand is if it's a false allegation, what it means is you look dangerously similar to somebody that might be engaged in this behavior to prepare a child for sexual abuse. Okay, well, what does the authentic look like for someone to associate that with me? And generally what that would look like is being in the wrong place with somebody by myself or engaged in horseplay or inappropriate touch or talk. So once I understand what the grooming process looks like of a preferential offender grooming a teenager, for example, then I need to – and everybody's going to be trained with understanding this is what that grooming process looks like. Don't get anywhere near what that grooming process looks like. So what does that look like for me? If somebody sends me an off-color YouTube video link – I'm not going to share that with my students. I'm going to do the best I can to delete that. If somebody's engaging in a bunch of horseplay, like at one church not far from here, they had two parents walk in and they, they were they were adult leaders at a youth camp and the youth pastor had a bunch of children around in a circle and they were taking each other, taking turns thumping each other's genitals. Okay, it's like I don't know whether that person's a sexual abuser or not, but I would definitely put that in the category of you're an idiot, okay? (laughs) If I have to ask the question, are you doing that to groom these children and desensitize and try to introduce nudity and sexual touch, or are you just not bright? Not bright. Because either way, I'm going to dismiss that person from my program. Mm -hmm. But see, it's by knowing what the grooming process looks like, I know not only am I not going to engage in that behavior, I'm going to redirect that in the culture of my particular youth ministry. Mm-hmm. Same with touch. Okay, we can walk in and some people are just touchy. You know, some people just will hug. And for some children you may not know that they'd already been victimized and that certain behavior might, you know, to them be construed as a prelude to something that's sexual that's about to follow. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it's important, knowing the grooming process, knowing some of the statistics about what population you're dealing with, to clearly identify what is and is not appropriate touch. You know, like, what do guys like to do? We love to wrestle. Okay. But you see, with this melee of wrestling and big piles of people, it's hard to distinguish that person with an inappropriate motive between those people that are just not very bright and a bunch of grabbing and inappropriate touching and de-pantsing and, and just dumb stuff. right? But to clearly identify what is and is not appropriate touch, communicate it to my people so that if I do see it, now everybody understands exactly who to report that to and everybody knows the consequences. You know, like at one of the camps we had, we trained clearly, told them who to share the information with, what we're going to do with the information. Notwithstanding that instruction that I don't ever want to see your butt, this particular counselor mooned a group of people. One of the counselors knew exactly what to do with that information, shared it with leadership. An hour later, this person's in the administrator's office crying and swearing I'm not a sexual abuser. An hour later, he was driving home. Point, was he a sexual abuser? I don't know. But I clearly communicated to you what was the appropriate and inappropriate types of behavior in this particular program. I saw the behavior which I've identified clearly, and I've asked you to leave. Because idiots and sexual abusers both go home. So in that sense, I would want to know enough about what the grooming looks like, Mm -hmm. clearly identify what is going to be appropriate and inappropriate within my culture, and then tell people it's not a witch hunt. We all lock arms, and we help each other do this well. So we see somebody that a kids crying because of a divorce situation or whatever in a room, and they wind up by themselves because people are starting to leave the building. Come alongside that person. Hey, let's go out to the parking lot. Hey, let's. Can you finish this conversation at Starbucks? Can you? One way or another, we help each other not find ourselves in harm's way. That's okay. interesting. You know, I, th-
2: you're bringing back memories that I that uh, <laughs> hadn't even thought about. I was a recreation worker for uh, one summer. Uh, in Austin, <clears throat> and we had a rule that was never explained to us why we had it, other than, uh, and that was you don't you don't touch any of the kids. It was it was just like a you just don't just do not do this. And it was, it was interesting. It was stressed to us that we didn't do this, but I don't I don't at least I don't remember being given a particular explanation for why the rule existed, which always struck me as a teenager. You know, I'm just sitting there. Doing my recreation work, it struck me as odd that they go out of their way to do this. But hearing this conversation, I can go, okay, I could see why having working with thousands of people in rec centers across the city, or maybe not hundreds, you know, they would give this kind of an instruction. It would have been, it would have been perhaps a little nicer to have known why they were so insistent on this. But I remember, I, I still vividly remember. Getting, they certainly are making a point of this. I wonder why. You know, I thought it had to do with well, don't put yourself in a position where you're going to strike a kid or punish them or, or, or uh, uh, spank them or whatever for doing something wrong. It's a teenager. You might want to do that with a younger child, but you don't do that. That's the context I thought they might be thinking
3: of, right. but I really didn't know. But that, that illustrates the point we were trying to make yeah. earlier. You gotta give people the why, the awareness yeah. training, before you can give them the what. Yeah. Leadership has to understand the why before they can even create the what. Yeah. Because for most people, rules are changes. We don't want rules, especially those of us that are working with teenagers. Mm-hmm. You know, we want freedom to have fun and make this edgy. And giving them the why is necessary to get the what. Well, we we have run a little over time and and
2: I appreciate the I've got ground cover. <laughs> and what we normally do I normally don't do this on air but I think I'm going to do it now. What we normally do is when we realize We've only scratched the surface and got, it, so I'll, I'll say, you know, I, I hope we have the opportunity to come back and take a, a little more look at some of this because I think once we listen to this the first time, we'll come around and think through uh, perhaps a, a whole series of other follow up kinds of questions that relate. But I do appreciate you taking the time to get us oriented to this. I can say, in all honesty, that when I heard the chapel, and even after hearing the chapel and knowing that we needed to do this, I had no idea. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so uh, this has been extremely helpful, and we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And we hope uh, this has been helpful to those of you who've listened. I want to thank Greg and Jay for joining us. And uh, this is The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and it does matter very much how you protect your children.
0: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast.